This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are Duburi Subarao, former governor of the Reserve Bank of India and a research fellow at the Center for Advanced Study of India at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and we also have Devesh Kapoor, who is the former director here of the Center for Advanced Study of India and is now the director of Asia programs and a professor of South Asian studies at the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. We are speaking with both of them about the budget that the government of India unveiled on February 1st and its impact on the economy. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, so, uh, so, uh, Dr. Subharao, if we could begin with you. Uh, when we f- spoke recently about the Indian economy and its challenges, you had used the metaphor of an elephant. Uh, do you think the most recent budget will inspire the elephant to start dancing? Uh, as much as I hope uh, the budget will inspire the elephant to start dancing, uh, disappointingly, there is little in the budget to get that act going to revive the, uh, the economy's growth performance. Uh, our growth slowdown is deeply structural, requiring a structural response. And I believe there is little in the budget by way of that. What the economy needs for a sustained turnaround is kick-starting private investment. And a necessary condition for inspiring investor confidence is implementation of structural and governance reforms. This is a long-haul effort, but as Mao said, even a thousand-mile journey has to start with the first step. That the budget did not launch the journey, even did not take the first step, I believe, is a big disappointment. And I think uh, the budget will not do much to in, uh, to engineer a sustained uh, growth reversal of the economy. So, Devish Kapoor, I wonder if you agree with uh, what was just said, uh, and I also wonder what your reaction was to the budget. <clears throat> Speaking of the disappointment, uh, the Bombay Stock Exchange Sensex Index fell 2.54%. After the budget was announced, were you surprised by that? Well, first, I, I want to say I, I I sort of fully agree with Doctor with, with, with like Dr. I think I guess in my case, I did not have that high expectations of the budget like to begin with. So in that sense, I was not disappointed. It's always good to have low expectations. You're disappointed less. Uh, in the sense that it's not clear to me that the budget is the best place to to go about doing announcing and doing the sort of structural reforms that the governor has has referred to. Uh, I do think, however, as he said, that even if it had recognized the magnitude of the challenge the economy faces and said that the government knows that there are some very serious issues and is uh, determined to address them, then it would have sent a strong, strong, strong signal. I think the best thing one could say sir, about about the, about the, the, the sub-budget was it was not an irresponsible budget. You know, 
in terms of it could have tried to spend its way out. And yes, the fiscal deficit targets were were sort of increased, but you know, largely it was a somewhat stolid, you might call it prudent budget, but not one that seemed to indicate that it was aware and seized of the magnitude of the problems the economy was facing. The as far as the sensex was concerned, you know, that frankly didn't uh, affect I wouldn't take too much like from that. As you know, a few days later it bounced back. In any case, you know, people have been arguing, you know, that the Sensex uh, has been going to all-time highs <laughs> despite the the economic challenges facing India. So you could argue that actually the Sensex needed a sort of wake-up call, and it's been uh, a little too exuberant given the underlying realities. You you said your expectations were uh, uh, kind of low. Uh, why why were they so low in the first place? Well, I think they were low because over the I mean it's pretty clear over the last year uh, every economic indicator was going south. Right. I mean, as Dr. Subarao said, investment above all growth, uh, unemployment was doing bad, exports were down. Uh, and, uh, and basically, the financial markets and, and, and credit markets were really at an all-time low. So what one had not seen over the year was the government recognizing the gravity of the problem and instead, in a sense, uh, frittering away the political capital after its its, its its massive victory last May in a fairly, in a, not fairly, but a very divisive social agenda rather than a razor-like focus on the economy. So to that extent, I guess my expectations were not very high. As, as both of you said, uh, you know, it's, it's a fact that India's economy has been struggling. There have been several quarters of uh, falling growth and uh, rising unemployment. Uh, uh, could you both uh, help us think through what the budget, what does the budget do or fail to do to address those two critical issues of growth and un- unemployment? Dr. Subara, what do you think? Uh, you are right that uh, growth has been declining. Uh, for the last several quarters, we posted growth of less than 5%. And virtually everyone has agreed that for this fiscal year, we'll be lucky if we get growth of 5%. Even for the next fiscal year, uh, the expectations are quite subdued. Uh, 6.5% will be the maximum perhaps that we can get. And most people believe that we'll be lucky if we get 6%. So not only have we lost our bragging rights as the fastest growing large economy in the world, uh, we are not even in the top league anymore. And that's a cause for much despair um, because hundreds of millions of people's livelihood depends on India's growth reviving. And the problems uh, are well known. Investment is down at its peak when India growth story was unfolding. Investment was as high as 38%. The GDP is now come to near as low as 30%. Productivity of investment is low because of poor infrastructure, poor skills, 
There is widespread and deep agricultural distress. There are no jobs being created. Unemployment is uh, large and growing. This is not exactly a jobless growth, but certainly uh, the job intensity of growth is low. Manufacturing is down. Exports are not doing very well. So the list of problems is very long, and I don't believe the budget even began to address some of these deep-rooted structural problems. Admittedly, there were some allocations for agriculture, some allocations for infrastructure, uh, some measures to attract foreign capital uh, by way of through sovereign wealth funds and through uh, uh, opening up certain specified categories of government securities for non-resident investors, etc. But I don't believe that that is uh, an adequate response to the depth of the problem. So as much as, uh, like Devesh said a short while ago, the budget did not do much wrong, but it not did not do much right either. Uh, it failed to address deep-rooted structural reforms. It didn't do anything much for the MSME sector, which would have created jobs. Uh, there was some investment in agriculture, but I don't think it's adequate to tackle the deep-rooted agricultural distress. So if you want me to give a balance sheet or a report card, I would say the, uh, the depth of the problems is so intense that the budget does not even begin to address them. Uh, I'll stop there. Devish Kapoor, do you do you agree with uh, Dr. Subarao's assessment? What do you think about? Yeah, uh, yeah. I I think the the only one uh, couple of points that I would add is I think I think it's very clear that that the government has fiscal constraints, and I think the positive part of the budget was that. It did not go on. It was not a. There was. It, it wasn't sort of fiscal profligacy. You know, increase the budget deficit. You know, it didn't try to spend its way out of these problems, which, as you know, would have created more inflationary cycles and 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 made the long term sort of revival uh, uh, sort of sort of more more like difficult. I I think the one area which I had hoped that the budget would recognize, be seized of the problem, and offer a path forward was really addressing the challenge of the financial sector. You know, it's something that's been pointed out, whatever the, the balance sheet problem of the banks, the NBFCs, uh, over-leveraged corporates. Uh, the government has tried to do something, especially the bankruptcy code. But I think to really, if it had to uh, put aside more resources to recapitalize the banks, offered a path that the 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 the, the credit cycle would be revived. There's hardly any lending or borrowing going on, and unless we have much more more you know credit flowing, we will not have investment. If there won't be investment, there won't be growth, and if there won't be growth, there won't be any employment. Yeah, no, I think. Yeah, that's... can I, uh, Devesh, have you, are you done with that response? Yeah, 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 please. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add a comment to what Devesh said about this uh, 
balance sheet problem and the budget not addressing the financial sector. Uh, I do agree that the twin balance sheet problem, as we've come to call it, is the most binding constraint to reviving investment, which is that uh, both banks and non-bank finance companies are not in a position to lend, and the corporates and even uh, small and medium industries are not in a position to borrow. So there is no demand, there is no supply of credit, and therefore investment has uh, stagnated. Uh, removing or addressing that bottleneck or solving that twin balance sheet problem, I think is a necessary, although not a sufficient condition for reviving investment. But how do you do that is the question. The various point is that the budget should have allocated more money for uh, recapitalizing banks and also some way of pumping capital into non-bank finance companies, etc. I have a different view on that. The government has already allocated a substantial amount of funds over the last two years for recapitalizing banks, 2.1 trillion uh, rupees, if I recall. Now, the question is, should they allocate more money at this point of time? And uh, I'm sure that's a question that uh, the finance minister and the team would have discussed internally very intensely. And they would have thought that, uh, look, we put in enough money for now. <clears throat> So let's wait and see what this money does. And then, if necessary, we will pump in more capital. Because it is not as if the government is sitting on a ton of money and the uh, twin balance sheet problem is festering and they're not doing anything. That's not the picture at all. The government has very little money, very severe fiscal constraints, enormous expenditure challenges. So in that allocation, they have not made any allocation for financial sector. And I think at this point of time, uh, that was uh, uh, quite a reasonable thing to do because they just wanted to see what their money was doing and whether they should put further good money uh, yeah, in addition to what they have already invested. I'll stop there. Yeah, no, I think that's... Uh, just that, to add... Uh, yeah, please, go ahead. Dave. Just to add to Dr. Subarao, you know, I think one signal... Uh, might have been that could have been said because you know we know that a core part of the problems of the public sector bank is of course uh, that there are severe governance sort of issues uh, the government is both the owner and the regulator so there's a very clear conflict of interest and i think if they had sent a signal to say at least one of the major public sector banks to you know privatize it uh, yes. That would have sent a signal. So you, so I think Dr. Subarao is absolutely right. Is that you know there are so many competing you know demands for one limited amount of government you know funds that you can only go on pouring so much more money in the public sector banks. But unless you have the governance changes in the banks, and frankly, one of them is privatization. They have said, uh, you know, about that they will be moving much more aggressively on privatization, but the public sector banks are not part of that. Yeah. Uh, I agree with Devesh on that, that the, uh, the more important question is the public sector nature of our banking system and how long we can continue with that. I agree that the public sector banks 
did serve a purpose. Uh, they had uh, served a great purpose by way of penetrating banking, the, giving a deepening financial inclusion. But I think they served their purpose, and now there is really a conflict between our growth needs and having public sector banks, and they become a holy cow. Instead of owning up to the fact that there's, it's not possible to keep supporting public sector banks anymore, uh, the government still hangs on to the idea of uh, the public sector banks being holy cows, and I think that's untenable. So uh, instead, they're doing things like bank consolidation, etc., which are um, halfway solutions. So I think it would have been good if, for example, the budget or any other government statement outside of the budget had said that we're going to. This is we, we are owning up the fact that we need to privatize public sector banks, and there is the roadmap to do that. I think that would have been an enormous sentiment changer. Yeah. My understanding is that the Modi administration does want to raise almost $30 billion uh, by selling shares in public sector enterprises, including banks, and but also you know uh, entities like the Life Insurance Corporation of India. Uh, plans to sell Air India, the national airline, have also been revived. Now, do you think these are good ideas? And how, how do you weigh the pros and cons of some of these uh, initiatives? Devesh, you want to go first on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I think selling Air India is a no-brainer. I mean, uh, over the last two decades, Air India's you know accumulated losses and budgetary bailouts are you know in the order of I don't have the exact numbers, but are in the order of about eight to ten billion dollars. Uh, there is really no reason for the government to run an airline when there are so many good private airlines. And so, you know, selling that and, you know, basically every year the government, you know, puts out a between half billion to a billion, you know, bailout for that airline. But of course, you know, what happens is that, uh, you know, they try to do it in the first BJP government led by much pay in about 2002-3, and of course it was blocked. Everyone said, "Yes, you know, such a selling the family silver." Now the family silver is is worth less than lead. So you know, it's not really going to fetch an enormous amounts of like of sort of cash. What it will do is to stop the fiscal hemorrhaging in the annual bailout. Uh, and, you know, I think my own sense is that, you know, selling shares of public sector companies is a start, but one has to ask, what is it about the government's goals that it wants to retain the majority control, you know, which is the case. They have sold shares of public sector banks, but that has not fundamentally altered the governance of those institutions as long as the state still has majority to control. So it's raised funds, uh, it's helping in the fiscal side, but it's not fundamentally transformed the governance and operations of those organizations. Now, I think here now, like Air India, they are, they are prepared to sell, uh, uh, you know, 
this are majority controlled but even here they have because of pressures from parts of the bjp uh they have ruled out foreign owners like for the airline so only domestic companies can bid which obviously means that you're going to get a sort of a lesser value because there are only two or three domestic companies that might even think about bidding so it still is you know i, I think on the whole it's it's the commitment is very laudable i leave lic to dr subarao uh but and say all i can say about lic is it's going to take a while this is a very large company with lots of assets and you cannot just to prepare the grounds for a good privatization or even selling of shares is going to take a fair bit of time dr subarao what do you think i stop there Yeah yeah sure uh, I let me give my own take on that Mukul your question was whether this uh, selling of shares in public enterprises or what we call in India disinvestment is a good or a bad idea um my broad response to that is that uh, just the no public policy issue uh, admits of a binary answer so is this that it is both good and bad it's good because uh when the government needs to get out of the public sector there was a time uh, in the early decades of the independence when public investment was seen as the linchpin of india's economic development it was the center to our development ideology whether it is because of the socialist ideology or because of the belief that the private investment or private enterprise was not yet mature to invest the government invested in virtually everything uh you know so we were making steel we were running hotels government was even making bread and even liquor in some states so whether it was good or a bad idea it uh, reached a certain stage where the size of the public sector started becoming dysfunctional and started diverting government's attention from the core functions so the logic of the reforms with that we unleashed or launched in 1991 one of the uh, one of the underlying uh, uh, paradigm of reform was to reduce the public sector and since then disinvestment has been one of the standard items in the budget the the idea was to yield space to the private sector yield space to the private investment and allow the government to concentrate on its core functions of uh, law and order defense collecting taxes etc and concentrate on providing public goods and merit goods so to that extent i think the idea of the government getting out of many of these areas including airlines insurance banking uh, and certainly production steel etc is a good idea my concern is apart from what devesh said about whether we can generate 2 lakh trillion rupees sort of this disinvestment as has been budgeted uh, a more important concern for me is the motivation for this uh, we are disinvesting not because of uh, a belief that the government needs to get out and the government needs to focus on its core function we are disinvesting because we need the money so my concern about this investment is that the motivation is the wrong one that we need the money for other purposes 
My other concern about this investment is what are we spending this money on? Uh, we are selling away LIC, we're selling away Air India, we're selling away steel plants, all that is good. But are we spending that on further productive investment like uh, infrastructure? Or are we spending that on unproductive uh, uh, expenditures like salaries and pensions? And my concern is that we are disinvesting and spending this money on current expenditure, which is the wrong thing to do. So to sum up, I believe it's a good thing at the broad level for the government to get out of this, but I think it's a bad thing uh, for us to be using the money for what we're using it. Yeah, no, I stop there. Yeah, no, those are those are again uh, excellent points. Uh, now, apart from uh, other factors that both of you have mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. one other reason why the Indian economy has mm-hmm. been sort of uh, in in trouble is the is the fact that uh, consumer spending has been uh, in the doldrums. And in this budget, uh, the, the finance minister, Nirmala Sitaraman, presented a package of tax cuts for middle-class families. Uh, uh, do you believe that will help to increase consumer spending and was it a strong enough stimulus, especially given everything that you have said about the economy at the moment? Uh, should I uh, go first on that? Yeah, go ahead, please, David. Please. please go ahead. No, no, no please. Uh, I think um, my own sense is that more than the middle class, but, uh, in terms of consumer spending, the more money we can put in the hands, and the budget tries that in the hands of low income and the poor, the more you, the marginal propensity to spend is is higher. Uh, one large item of spending in the budget is PM Kisan. I think it's 75,000 crores. It's basically a cash transfer scheme uh, for all farmers. Uh, and I think that along with spending on the, on the Mahatma Gandhi Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, I think will put m- uh, more purchasing power especially in some rural India. And that, I think, will create some additional consumer demand, especially like from rural India. And the middle class cut, you know, obviously affects much more urban India. So if one is a little sanguine, the two can complement each other. But I think in the end, consumer spending will also 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 depend in some confidence about the future. And you know, so in, in that case, sort of reviving the animal spirits, a much more positive view about the future, about growth, etc., will also also matter in addition like, to these tax cuts. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I completely agree with Devesh on this, that uh, the tax cuts were neither necessary nor sufficient if the idea was to boost consumption and thereby turn around the economy. I would say they're not necessary because arguably part of the slowdown of the economy is cyclical because of a drop in consumption spending. But I think a tax cut was not necessary uh, because in it, as we get a good monsoon, as manufacturing improves, as it seems to be, we will get a recovery, shallow as it might be. 
And once recovery starts, uh, growth will get back to its potential. I don't believe any tax cut was actually necessary for this purpose. And a tax cut was also not sufficient because the income tax base is quite low. And the middle class is paying taxes. Uh, that's a very small segment of the tax-paying class. Uh, if you put more ha- money in their hands, uh, they are more likely to save it rather than spend it. So as Devesh said, if the idea was actually uh, to boost consumption, a better way of uh, utilizing that space would have been, instead of tax cuts, to increase some uh, allocation for an expenditure program that would have put money in the hands of low-income people. Uh, That would have given a consumption boost much more than the tax cut. Stop there. Uh, no, I think uh, both, both of you make really valid points. The and and uh, since you mentioned agricultural incomes, you know, I I wonder uh, what both of you think of the plan to increase spending on agriculture and rural infrastructure by thirteen percent. Uh, and and do you think that will have a significant impact on the agrarian distress that India has been facing for a long time? Uh, you know, there have been so many news sto- yeah, I, stories about, you know, farmer suicides right. and so, poverty. Right. It's sort of interesting. Uh, Dr. Subra, can I take no, this No, please, please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's something, um, you know, if you look at the, at this very long budget speech, uh, you know, agriculture and the 16 point whatever action there was a 16 point action agenda to double farmers incomes right in the opening section sort of uh, of the you know budget uh but what was interesting was that in the budget agriculture is placed along with health water sanitation and education in a section called aspirational india it does not find mention in the section on economic development Hmm. Interesting. So, you know, in, so you know, it's part of this thinking for a long time. And you know, to be fair to this government, they're not new. I mean, it's been agriculture is seen as almost part of welfare. It's not seen as core part of of the of the of the productive sector of the economy. The farmer is not seen as a risk taking entrepreneur. The mm. farmer is seen as someone who needs to be uh, 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 protected, uh, you know, given some uh, things. But really, the way you think of a farmer as an entrepreneur who takes risks, who takes parts in markets, that's really been absent in our thinking because you control all inputs prices, you control outputs, you interfere in all sorts of input and output markets. Uh, and then when things don't work out, you you try and pour more like money. I mean, a very simple thing, right? For a long time, we've been confused. Do we want to protect the farmer with high prices or the consumer with low prices? So anytime inflation slightly goes up, you know, there are price controls and the farmer almost never gets the upside of high prices. 
But of course, he bears most of the downside of low prices because the MSP and procurement really is valid in very few states and for very few crops. So to that extent, this budget as well, you know, it has, it says some right things about, uh, uh, you know, f uh, about markets, about crop insurance and things like that. But even now, I think the general thing, just as Dr. Subhash said about markets in general, that there isn't a deep uh, buy-in that markets can play a positive role. So it's always about trying to protect farmers rather than to encourage them to be risk-taking entrepreneurs. Hence, you'll see it, it finds the, the discussion on agriculture is part of aspirational India. It's not part of economic development. It's very interesting, very interesting point. Uh, Subara, what do you think? <laughs> what I think is that as much as there have been some allocations in the budget for agriculture and rural infrastructure, and those are the right things to do, I don't think those allocations or any announcements made in the budget are equal to the task of uh, addressing the deep distress in the agriculture sector. And I believe what the agriculture, I, I believe the agriculture sector is a problem both of uh, economic growth as well as welfare. Uh, you know, agriculture contributes only about 15 to 16% of GDP, but 55 to 60% of our labor force is trapped in agriculture. So how well the agriculture does and uh, uh, the performance of the agriculture sector is important not only to the economic well-being of India, but even to the emotional well-being of India. And uh, the problems in agriculture are manifold for infrastructure, uh, inadequate credit, distorted markets that uh, Devesh was talking about, skewed incentives, um, a loss that stifled private investments. So the problems are very deep, uh, very many, and I don't think uh, the budget has even started addressing them. As Devesh said much earlier in this conversation, the budget is not the only policy platform for the government. Uh, perhaps uh, there are uh, not perhaps there are very many other platforms and I do hope that soon enough the government comes with a concrete strategy to address this deep uh, uh, distress in our agriculture sector because I believe that's going to it's not just an economic problem it's uh, it's a political problem as well because if you don't find jobs for the hundreds of millions of people who are trapped in the agriculture sector, outside of the agriculture sector, they're going to have uh, deep political problems. Just to add to Dr. Subala, you know, the fact that the, the, the core problem of low productivity in Indian agriculture, that can only increase if you get vastly more people out of agriculture, is something that Dr. Ambedkar pointed out 100 years ago in a lovely paper in 1918, where he pointed out that agriculture can only do well if there are far fewer people working in agriculture. Yes. 
And that yeah. has, of course, problem has just multiplied. The second thing I should add is, you know, we should recognize that agriculture is a state subject in the Indian Constitution. So the states have a much larger role to play. And the center can, even with the best of intentions, can only do so much for the sector itself. And we should really hold the Indian states much more accountable for their role in the performance of agriculture in their state. So if I well, I do know that. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no, please, please go ahead. Please go ahead. No, done, done. No, no, done, done. Yeah. yeah but, no, from that point of view, I know that uh, I am aware that uh, it's the chief ministers and state administrations' job to resolve agriculture distress. Uh, the central government can only do so much. But uh, where I would say the central government and the prime minister can add value is to actually have a conference of chief ministers and right. say that uh, agriculture is a deep structural problem. How do we as states and as the central government address this problem? And my concern is that we've not even begun doing anything of that sort to treat agriculture as a central problem and as a problem that transcends beyond politics. You know, uh, uh, th I'm done. Th th thank you for yeah. that. Uh, now, apart from agriculture, you know, the uh, the other issue in the budget is that the goal of cutting the fiscal deficit uh, seems to have been abandoned. Uh, the projected deficit was supposed to be, uh, I think, three point three percent of the GDP. Now it is going to be three point eight percent. Now this will require, of course, the government to step up its borrowing. Uh, I wonder if each of you could say uh, what implications you think this is going to have for economic growth? Thank you. Uh, you know, you're right, Mukul, that the finance minister invoked the escape clause in uh, the Fiscal Responsibility and Budget Management Act, the FRBM Act, to increase the permitted fiscal deficit by 0.5 percentage points. So the fiscal deficit for next year is going to be 3.5 percent after invoking the uh, leeway given by the uh, FRBM Act. Actually, the true deficit is higher than admitted debt because somewhere in the budget documents the finance minister has for the first time and for this she deserves credit, disclosed off-balance or off-budget borrowing that the government has done, which is as much as 0.8 percentage points of GDP for this year as well as next year. So the fiscal deficit for next year is going to be not only 3.5 percent, but 3.5 percent plus 0.8 percent, which is 4.3 percent. Hmm. That's already quite high. And add to that, the unrealistic projections on revenue growth and disinvestment proceeds that we talked about, we have a potentially unsustainable fiscal situation for this year as well as next year. Therefore, I'm quite relieved that the finance minister did not succumb to the temptation of a fiscal stimulus. There was enormous pressure, as you will recall, on her to launch a fiscal stimulus, as Devesh said a short while ago, uh, that the government should uh, devise a strategy of spending our way out of this growth slump. 
uh, that would have been very unwise. So to the extent that the finance minister did not succumb to the temptation of, uh, of fiscal stimulus, I'm quite relieved. But at the same time, I'm quite concerned about the very high fiscal deficit there already is and about the potentially unsustainable fiscal situation. And, you know, we paid a heavy price in the past for fiscal profligacy. Uh, uh, for example, today, fiscal pressures will actually undermine the Reserve Bank's efforts to revive investment by lowering long-term interest rates. Uh, these fiscal pressures can also result in a sovereign rating downgrade and thereby threaten our effort to get foreign investment. They can stoke inflation pressures. Inflation already is significantly about the Reserve Bank's inflation target rate. And uh, at a time like that, a uh, high fiscal deficit can exacerbate those pressures. And most importantly, uh, they can create pressures in the external sector. Uh, we had a very nasty balance of payments crisis in 1991 and a near crisis in 2013. And both those a crisis were at their heart a consequence of extended fiscal profligacy. So I think there is a heavy price to pay for fiscal profligacy, uh, and uh, the sooner the government gets back to the path prescribed by the FRBM, the better off we will be, notwithstanding the enormous constraints of uh, uh, of. Uh, Increasing tax revenue and meeting all the expenditure needs, I think the most important priority is to get the fiscal right. I'll stop there. Uh, just to, uh, I mean, there's very little I can add to Dr. Sobara, who's captured you know, all the issues so well. Just I think on this uh, little bit, we should give credit to this budget on two counts. One is, uh, you know, Within all those constraints, a reasonable fiscal, you know, it, it, it was it was fairly prudent in not trying to spend their way out. And the second, I think, thing which uh, was heartening was a much greater transparency on off-budget uh, borrowings, uh, off-balance sheet, which was not very transparent earlier. And, you know, transparency itself is very important to get confidence that the numbers are exactly what they say they are. I think on, on these two things, I do want to credit this budget. Uh, Mukul, I have one more comment on this fiscal issue, sure. which is that uh, somehow all of us uh, focus so much on the central government's fiscal deficit and fiscal stance that uh, we tend to neglect looking at the states, which are actually the big elephant in the room. Mm. Uh, together, the states spent one and a half times more than what the center spends. For example, if the center is spending 100 rupees, the states spend 150 rupees. And uh, the development impact of state expenditure is significantly higher than the development impact of central expenditure. Therefore, the public finance management of state governments together matters much more to our development outcomes than we tend to acknowledge. Sadly, the states are not doing a good job. Uh, in fact, the Reserve Bank in its latest annual report has highlighted several red flags about states' uh, fiscal performance, about their inability to 
increase their own revenue generation. They're unsustainable uh, debt burdens. Their tendency to cut down on capital expenditure because they've got to meet uh, uh, expenditures on loan waivers, power loan, power sector loans, and uh, other income transfer schemes. So when we talk about fiscal deficit and fiscal stance of India, to, as for a total picture, I think it's important that we also look at the stage performance, and there it's not uh, it's not uh, promising at all. Yeah, no, I think you're you're quite right. Thank thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so, so to 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 wrap up um, the last uh, couple of points, uh, I wonder if. Uh, uh, Finance Minister Sitaraman were to seek your advice on what else she could have done to stimulate the economy and address some of the underlying structural issues that we've been talking about. Uh, what, what advice would you give her about what could she have done differently? I think she would seek advice from Dr. No, I think she would seek advice like from you much before from me. <laughs> no, she's not actually sought advice. But, I, you know, but my point on this is that uh, the government of India is not handicapped for advice. Uh, right. There's so much of advice that they get and there is so much of capacity within the government and uh, within India that uh, what are all the right things that need to be done are known. So if we're not doing all the right things, it's not because we don't know what to do. Uh, but it's because we are unable or unwilling to do them. See, look, uh, our list of aspirations is very long. We want to be a five trillion economy by 2024. We want to double farmers income by 2022. We want to create or we have to create uh, tens or if not hundreds of millions of jobs. We want to engineer a manufacturing revolution. We want to be an export powerhouse. Uh, we want to occupy the space vacated by China in this global value change. So all our aspirations are out there. And we also know what needs to be done. And the finance minister and the government, to their credit, have done a number of things uh, to put India on uh, a growth track. But, you know, one thing that's lacking is that uh, the sentiment about investing in India is quite negative. Uh, uh, therefore, what needs to be done to turn around the sentiment is that the government has to send out a message that India is a good place, a promising place to do business. Uh, all the structural reforms that Devation has spoke about earlier, about land, labor, foreign investment, those are necessary. Uh, but above all, what is required is to turn around the sentiment. And what I would have told the finance minister is that soon after the budget, the prime minister must stand up in the parliament and make a statement saying that the economy is uh, in deep problems. My government and I are sensitive to that. We know what needs to be done. These are politically difficult, but the people have given us a mandate to, to do politically difficult things. Therefore, this is my agenda for reviving the economy. I admit that this is not going to turn around the economy tomorrow. This is a long haul effort, but this is the timetable, and this is what I'm going to do, and these are the milestones by which my performance should be measured. 
If Prime Minister Modi had made a statement like that in the Lok Sabha, I think that would have turned around the sentiment. That's the advice I would have given him or to the finance minister. Well, we'll I'll stop there. Devish Kapoor, I think you have the final word on this. What do you think? Well, I, can, I, I, I can't better what Dr. Kamarao <laughs> said. I think the only other small thing I would add is that, as we know, in that the recent state elections and the election results from Delhi have not been kind to the ruling party. I think they are sending a signal that the people want their own priorities are about basic bread and butter issues and the economy. And they're sending a signal that priorities of the government need to refocus uh, very sharply, razor-like focus on the economy. And that, you know, social agenda issues that are divisive are not just distractive, but they can be quite destructive. Uh, and I think that would be the one advice that I would give is the economy is the problem and therefore that should be the sole focus without which uh, this will not, uh, it'll be hard to change things. Yeah, I agree with Devish on that, certainly. So, uh, Dr. Subarao and Devish Kapoor, thank you so much for very stimulating uh, conversation on the budget. Really, thank you so much to both of you for your time. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.